0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Will the Supreme Court play a role in the outcome of the presidential race? Well, both the Trump and Biden campaigns have set up legal team war rooms to plan for a range of contingencies with short lists of top Supreme Court litigators. The Supreme Court has been addressing last-minute pre-election skirmishes over the rules for casting and counting ballots in the presidential election. Joining me is election law expert Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. By a 5-3 vote, the court rejected Democrats' request to reinstate a six-day extension for the receipt of mail-in ballots in Wisconsin of course, a pivotal state in this election. Tell us what the reasoning was in the concurring and dissenting opinions.
2: Right. So there was no opinion for the court. So there were four opinions, three concurring opinions, one by the chief justice, one by Gorsuch, and the longest one by Kavanaugh. And then there was a dissent by Justice Kagan that was joined by Breyer and Sotomayor. The long opinion by Justice Kavanaugh had two main points. One, and this is consistent with the points in other decisions of the court in the last couple of months, is the so-called Purcell principle, the idea that federal courts should not be changing the laws governing elections in the pre-election period. And that's been a constant that they constantly invoked by the court in all of its recent cases in which it struck down or stayed a lower court decision changing some aspect of state election law. The other point that he raised, which is also echoed in Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion, but only made by the two of them, is the idea that when it comes to writing election laws, even election laws that govern federal elections, that that is an area where the state legislatures are in charge, that the Constitution points to state legislatures in setting the laws for federal elections and so it's particularly inappropriate for federal courts to intervene, even with state laws that deal with federal elections. The two of them indicate that this goes beyond just the last-minute intervention of the so-called Purcell principle, the anti-last-minute intervention, and is more substantive that the Constitution actually constrains what courts can do to change state legislative rules. And indeed, the two of them and Kavanaugh at great length basically say that this is a principle that would also apply to state court decisions that change the election rules, state legislative rules that govern federal elections, and not just federal court decisions.
1: Some people are looking at what Justice Kavanaugh wrote and saying this foreshadows what happened in Bush v. Gore, that the Supreme Court could disrupt the vote count, that state courts don't have the last word.
2: Yes. Now, in Bush v. Gore, three justices of the Supreme Court embraced the idea that state courts cannot modify even state laws, even interpreting their own state constitution, cannot modify state laws when they apply to federal elections like a presidential election. Three justices took that position. The two justices who made the majority went off on the Equal Protection Clause on the idea that the order that the Florida Supreme Court had issued, in Bush v. Gore resulted in the unequal treatment of votes in different places. The majority of the movement has never embraced this, what's called the independent state legislature doctrine, the idea that no one can, can change what a state legislature does, not even a state Supreme Court. But certainly now you're hearing both Kavanaugh and Gorsuch taking that position. And I believe Justice Thomas was in the group that voted that way back in Bush v. Gore. The other two justices were ranked and Scalia, who, of course, are no longer on the court.
1: The Wisconsin case follows a four to four Supreme Court decision that allowed three extra days for ballots to arrive in Pennsylvania. It seems to be on its face a direct contradiction.
2: The big difference between the two cases is the Pennsylvania case came up as an appeal from the decision of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Pennsylvania Supreme Court interpreting its state statute and its constitution. And the different vote was Chief Justice Roberts declining to stay that order in the Pennsylvania case, but voting to stay the order of the federal district court in the Wisconsin case. And he has a brief concurrence in the Wisconsin case, pointing out that the criteria are different when the underlying order Comes from a state high court as opposed to a federal district court.
1: There's been some talk about the fact that there are now three justices on the court who worked on the Bush v. Gore case on the Republican side.
2: Does that make a difference? Right. I mean, in the sense that they they are familiar with how election litigation works. I mean, the one difference at the moment is that um, all of the court decisions that are being challenged, and of course, came down before the vote. I mean, Gore was about issues about how to count ballots where it wasn't clear, uh, how the voters had, it wasn't clear, uh, what, how the, how the voter had manifested his or her vote. Those so-called hanging chats and voters, when there were ballots that were, that were marked, but weren't clearly marked or clearly enough marked, be treated as if for a particular candidate and how, and the role of the, the courts in trying to in, sort of set rules the how to read those ballots. And there was a lot of anxiety then that, that there was going to be a lot of um, kind of inconsistent treatment of ballots depending on who the ballot counters were. Here, now it's more upfront. It's, it's before election There's still this issue of changing the rules. And I guess what you would say is um, putting aside for a second the, the partisan considerations, and maybe we shouldn't put aside the partisan considerations, but putting aside, there is this strong flavor of the Republicans on the Supreme Court now, that courts shouldn't be changing the rules, that if anybody is going to change the rules, it should be the state legislature. Uh, and when the state legislature hasn't changed the rules, the courts should not be. And the, the remaining Democrats on the Supreme Court, their philosophy has been it's okay, that given that there's an, a, a pandemic, given that there's an emergency, it's appropriate to modify the rules take the conditions created by the emergency into account. And so there is obviously there's a partisan uh, aspect to this. These are these, these judges uh, when they were younger lawyers, were all active partisans on the Republican side. So there's clearly a partisan aspect to it, but there's also kind of a, an ideological aspect about kind of uh, is it, sh- is it appropriate for the, court, for the courts to make it easier to vote uh, during a pandemic or do courts have to stay out And it's just a matter only for the legislature.
1: So we've talked about this before, but I'm going to ask you the question again now that you have a a full Supreme Court panel. How likely is it that there could be another case after the election similar to Bush v. Gore in that it will be up to the Supreme Court to decide the count in a in a state that's a swing state, that's an important state.
2: Right. I mean obviously the key thing is whether the election will hinge on one state, or I guess, or even, I guess it might be more than one state if the gap, if no one candidate has gotten up to 270 and the state or states in dispute would do it. I mean, that's what made Bush versus Gore so central is that Florida was absolutely dispositive and, you know, a state could be a swing state, but not be the tipping point state. So obviously, I mean, it could very well be that how a given state like Pennsylvania how its electoral votes are resolved may wind up in the Supreme Court. But it's really only going to matter, and we're not going to know this for another week, if that state or maybe another state, maybe Wisconsin, is a tipping point state. And that was what made Bush versus Gore so incredibly important. And that's when we're not going to know that until you know, more of the votes come in. But it's certainly possible that the election will come down to one or a couple of states, and there'll be disputes about which ballots ought to be counted. If a state has, you know, allowed absentee ballots to come in under rules that were not the rules that are more uh, liberal, more forgiving to the voter than the rules that are on the books, we may very well see some litigation on that.
1: I want to talk about Nevada because President Trump filed a election lawsuit last Friday, and it's about observation of the ballot. So what kind of observation is allowed Because President Trump has also complained about people in Pennsylvania, his people not being able to view the, the process. What kind of access to the ballot counting are candidates allowed to have?
2: Well, that's going to turn on the law of each state. I mean, in general, states do provide that there should be a representative of each party present, uh, you know, when ballots are being counted. But... The states obviously have some leeway in deciding, like, how many people from each side are present and what they're, you know, and in what form they're present. I think so long as they're balanced for the two sides, you can't demand that there be a large contingent of your people there or that people carrying guns can go in the way some of those militias have been trying to be at polling places. States generally have rules about, you know, making sure that there is bipartisan observation of how uh, ballots are counted. Uh, At some stage, it doesn't have to be in each polling place, but this is one where if if he's trying to change the rules, you know, uh, it's not clear that that should be allowed.
1: Finally, does all this litigation, this unprecedented amount of litigation before an election, does that hint at a post-election landslide of litigation?
2: I think a lot's going to turn on whether the results are within the margin of litigation. The litigation after the election will only matter if it's close enough so that the litigation can either require the counting of ballots that weren't counted or lead to the tossing of ballots that were accepted. And again, we're talking state by state. If the margin in a state is so big that litigation is not going to change the outcome, then you're not going to see much of it. But if we have a lot of close states, and I can't quite tell you what the marginal litigation really is going to be. It may turn on just how many absentee ballots are there and how many can be plausibly challenged. I mean, usually the cases in which litigation really matters, the margins between the candidates are pretty close. I mean, we're talking about, even though absentee ballots have a higher error rate traditionally than regular ballots, we're only talking about a few percentage points. So a lot will turn on just how close the election is in any given state. Whether it is within the margin of litigation and that, we will know hopefully next week.
1: Thanks, Rich. That's Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at com. Mississippi
1: retired the last state flag with the Confederate battle emblem in June. Republican Governor Tate Reeves signed the bill removing official status for the 126-year-old flag with the Stars and Bars Confederate battle emblem.
2: I know there are people of goodwill who are not happy to see this flag change. They fear a chain reaction of events erasing our history, a history that is no doubt complicated and imperfect. I understand those concerns and am determined to protect Mississippi from that dangerous outcome.
1: On Tuesday, the state's voters will decide whether a flag bearing the motto In God We Trust, under a white magnolia flower, should now fly over the state. But ballot initiatives in Rhode Island, Utah, and Nebraska show that reminders of slavery extend beyond the Deep South. My guest is Ann Bailey, a professor of history at the State University of New York at Binghamton. How important is it that voters are going to decide on a new flag for Mississippi? It's
3: important because I think, literally, since the end of slavery, from the Civil War and the end of slavery and the end of the Civil War, there has been this struggle to determine, you know, what place should the Confederacy, which lost the war, uh, which is why we have the United States, what place should the Confederacy and the memory of it be had in our public life? Um, And I should just say, just in principle, this is not looking at American history, but just in principle across the world, whenever you lose a war, you are not um, venerated in the highest office or in, you know, in public spaces as if you you won. So, I mean, I think there's just that on just a simple level that it conveys the wrong image of not just the state, but the, the country and what we feel about the United States of America. Because we have to remember that the war was fought about uniting the United States, about keeping the Union, about being who we are now. So I think it's really important for Mississippi and all states and everywhere where there are Confederate emblems to understand that you know, what are we trying to say? If we're trying to tell a little bit of history in a museum, that's different. If we're trying to contextualize the statue and say what it represents versus who we are now, that's different. But something that represents the entire state and everybody in the state, I think can't be so directly associated with the losing side of the war, which of course would have been the Confederates. Um, So I just think on a very simple level, this had to be done, and I'm, I'm glad to see that people of Mississippi are taking this, are moving in this direction on their own.
1: So, this flag was chosen by a commission, I believe, the new flag. Mm-hmm. So, are the voters expected to approve it?
3: it? It appears that they are. They have in the past, uh, you know, first of all, they had, I want to say, you know, kudos to them for having a very democratic process about. The change. Um, I had in, in previous writings and so forth, I have said in, in talks, I have been very clear that I thought that um, in general this should be done through a democratic process. If we believe in democracy, we have to practice it, and sometimes it takes a while, sometimes it's long and drawn out, but it's something that it's really if more people buy into something by definition, they're going to. They're going to, to own it, and they're going to defend it. So, in the past, and just in the in the last few years, they had a referendum before on this issue, and they did not um, they did not want to change it. So, I think you know the fact that this is something they decided on their own um, through their representatives that they might potentially want to change means that it's a good chance that it will change. And if not this season, perhaps the next one. I hope it will be this election season, though.
1: It might seem surprising to some people. It was surprising to me that Rhode Island, which, mm-hmm. you know, is a state you don't associate with slavery, the official name of the state is the State of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. And there right. was a proposal to trim that before, and that proposal failed.
3: Right. Well, first of all, as I've by- I also like to remind people, and I've written about in my books. You know, we don't associate Rhode Island with slavery, but we should. So let's start there. And New York and Massachusetts. I mean, you know, states like Rhode Island, first of all, they had slavery. They didn't ban it till 1843. Now, that said, it was not on a very large scale in the same way that you had it in the South. And it also should be said that, um, you know, Rhode Island, obviously in New York and places like that, many other places in the North, slavery did kind of die at somewhat of a natural death, certainly um, uh, before the, the Civil War in 1861. So you do have a different picture, North versus South. There's no question about that, at least a few decades before there's a civil war you have slavery dying out in many places in the north but what is not immediately obvious to us but it's clearly in the record very much in the record is that not only did they have slavery but they had slave traders and that's the important piece is that you had prominent slave traders from rhode oh. island from boston from massachusetts from new york leaving the south street seaport in the latter part of the slave trade, going to Africa, sending ships to Africa, you know, to, you know, be a part of the Atlantic slave trade, which in its last years and last decades was actually picking up steam. So um, Rhode Island was very much a part of that. And, um, you know, it's it's a, it's a legacy that, frankly, some are beginning to deal with that got uh, the Rhode Island Medallion Project think that's the name of it Whether they're they're beginning to put medallions around different places in Rhode Island where um which are connected in some way to slavery because because exactly because of your question because this idea of Rhode Island being associated with slavery is not immediately apparent perhaps it's not taught as well as it should be in schools which is an issue and so forth so yes it, it it doesn't surprise me um frankly and uh what what I hope will happen again in this case is that there is a a growing desire to move really away from that path that they will see that there's no reason to have that as a part of the name of the state.
1: Also surprising is that the state constitutions of Nebraska and Utah have provisions allowing slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for people convicted of crimes. And there are ballot initiatives in those states to remove those provisions.
3: Right. Now, this is this is a very interesting topic because um, in general, let me say that um, I love the South of the United States. I do a lot of work in the southern states, particularly Georgia and South Carolina. Um, I'm a big I'm very pro-South. I want, I want to say that from the standpoint of, in spite of the fact that I spent a lot of time on this history, and it's very difficult, and it has a very difficult path. I, you know, there are many things to appreciate about the New South. Let me say this though. South is so much associated with slavery, and then the rest of the country, somehow we have forgotten, as I mentioned before, that the North was involved in slave trading, also involved in slavery. I should also add um, the North also um, had factories that were um, basically operating and manufacturing slave byproducts, so they were actually working with southern planters in many ways um, in terms of the general economy. But when you think about Utah, Nebraska, states like this, again, you don't think you're right. You do not associate this with slavery, but the fact is that the federal government, our Constitution, the 13th Amendment, has exactly the same clause, which says there should be no slavery except the punishment of a crime. So, you know, to that extent, it's, it's, you can see where some of the states picked up on the very same, very same clause, which is still on the books for the federal government. Um, and now, of their own initiative, these states, again, to be commended, are saying, why do we have this? <laughs> you know, there should be no slavery, period. <laughs> period. No slavery in any U.S. territory. Period. That, that would be an amazing stance for human rights if not only do these states take it, but that you take a, a look again at the 13th Amendment and ask ourselves whether, as a people, we would like that to remain. Um, I, I, I might add here that the, the movie 13th um, by uh, Ava DuVernay and others, um, that very popular uh, documentary, that was one of the things they raised in that documentary was whether or not it's time for us to amend the 13th Amendment. Um, where that, so, that, so that it would say there should be no slavery period in the United States of America. Not for a punishment of a crime, not for anything. There's no caveats, no clauses, subordinate clauses attached, just an unequivocal stance against slavery.
1: Are there other states that have that language in their state constitutions?
3: I do not know offhand, but what I would like to say about process and once again i'm happy that it's happening democratically is that you know we have you know we have modern day slavery i I, I want to to really uh give a first of all commend those modern day abolitionists who are out there who often are working in the i would say in the trenches quietly they don't Get a lot of. No one is asking them a lot of questions about what they do. They certainly don't get a lot of airtime on TV and so forth. But you know, there are people who are working on uh, modern-day slavery and slave trafficking, not just here but around the world. Um, And I can say that wherever. If this were to happen, not only in states where this is the case, but if this were to happen in terms of a revision, a constitutional revision of the 13th Amendment, I think this would give a real boost to people working in this area. Um, I think it would really put people's attention back on the fact that slavery is not, you know, involuntary servitude is not over around the world. And so we're not just talking about the past, but we're also talking about the present.
1: Is this the end of it or is there more to be found in this country relating to to slavery that has to be excised?
3: I think we are we are likely to find um, some of this elsewhere and I, I want to say it is such a healthy process for the country to go through and uh, the very I think we all know that a lot of this reckoning is happening, is happening because of what took place this summer. Um, not to say that there weren't always activists on the ground and these politicians or others who were trying to get, this, get attention to these issues. For example, with the Confederate statues, um, you know, many of us have been writing about these statues and memorials for a long time. Um, And saying that there should be a democratic process to consider whether or not they stay up or they go down or whether they're just, if they stay up, they're contextualized so that once again, it's clear that they lost the war. It's clear that we would not have a United States of America, you know, if we had continued to, if we continued to valorize um, the Confederate cause and that obviously they were pro-slavery and that is not a stance that we are for now. So there are many of us who've been writing about this and talking about it and wishing for a democratic process for this to, for this to be addressed and, and very largely falling on deaf ears. What happened this summer with the death of George Floyd and um, these other clearly anti-Black racist incidents um, was that it really did, in in some ways, really move so many aspects of the public, so many different people. Um, um, I've been, you know, I've been doing this for a long time June, uh, yeah. and I have to say that I've never seen such a, you know, outpouring of, of a desire to really examine um, some of these issues and real self-examination. And so, what you're seeing is not—it's really not just okay. The corporation's saying, "What should we do?" And sometimes they do that for different reasons, right? Sometimes their own commercial reasons. But you are seeing even archives um, opening up and saying, you know, I think it's the Alabama archives. Um, you know, their state archives saying, you know, we were we were started to to valorize the Confederate cause. They they came out with a statement on their own. <laughs> I mean when I saw that I was just, just you know happily shocked, to be honest with you, where they're saying, you know, this is what, we're, what our our beginnings were. And we are now having our own reckoning saying we have to contextualize these documents and we have to do better in terms of diversity and all of these things. Nobody asked them. They Nobody, you know, protested in front of their doors. I mean, I just think this is remarkable that they themselves realized that we have to look back to be able to move forward. And so I think there is a lot to be done. And there are going to be more these, um, you know, state initiatives if you look. Because there's a lot of, there's so many state laws and rules, of course, right? There's just so many. And some of them no one pays attention to. And some of them really do not matter anymore. And they're, they're obsolete. And so maybe we can just, you know, maybe people haven't paid attention for that reason. But this is a moment to pay attention to some of those. rules and laws because it at least says to the rest of the state um, this is the direction that we're going we're going in a more positive and progressive direction and so I I expect more of this I hope for more of it quite frankly and we don't know where it's going to come from I mean I mean because every state has their own set of laws Uh, again many of these things are Um, They're on the books, but they're practically off the books because nobody pays attention. But if they can put some attention and some light on these issues, I think that's going to be good for that state. I really think so. Certainly in the case of Mississippi, what we're seeing now, you know, Mississippi, their places like this, which is they have lost business because of this. They're they're states where people don't want to go and shoot a film. They don't want to go and, you know, invest money. Because they say, you know, that flag, I don't think so. Um, you know, this has happened. And I think that's a shame. So even making this a more public stance about these different issues, I think it's going to be good for these states. And it's going to be good for the people of these states. And certainly for people of color um, who have had to, you know, to live with the indignity for a very long time. You know, again, I my hope as well, which I said, and I, I want to be very clear that, you know, changing these rules, you know, taking away plantations, of course, important, changing the flag, very important, um, and any other flags like this, the Confederate monuments, you know, having a democratic process to look at these issues. But I, I, I want to say that I, I, my hope is that no one will stop here, that this is not enough. <laughs> it still, It still will not. You know, it's the beginning of, of, of systemic change, but it's not the end of systemic change. And so that's really important. I think making these changes, I will not say they're cosmetic. They are not symbolic. They're much more than symbolic, and they're much more than cosmetic changes. But if Mississippi, for example, which, which routinely is in the bottom, you know, bottom five of education statistics, right, economics and so forth, if they And that disproportionately affects people of color in that state. If they want to address those issues, changing the flag will not be enough. And so I, I think, you know, this is a program about laws. Um, laws also will affect, you know, positive laws will also affect the education, the incarceration rate, all of that, of people of color in that state. And I, I, I just want to just exhort and encourage um, politicians, activists, others, to, to keep on going in that direction, not stop at the change of a flag, not stop at the change of a, of a specific law, um, but really look at some of the root issues, root causes of the disparities that we face.
1: Thanks, Ann. That's Anne Bailey of the State University of New York at Binghamton. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.